Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. About a week later on August 21st of 2012, I'm sitting in my living room. It's like two in the morning, and I had this thought that, you know what, nothing's ever going to get any better. Living hurt emotionally, spiritually, physically. This wasn't a pre-planned thing. I, I hadn't like thought about how to do this or you know, when I was gonna do it, but there was a pile of pills on my coffee table and I took them all and I attempted suicide by overdose. And I can remember as I started to cramp up, the black starts to fade in thinking, as soon as this goes black, that's it. And I've never been so scared in my life. That's Adam Sud. And this is episode 144 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hello friends, how you doing? Keeping well, I hope. It's awesome to be back here with you again for another episode. Should this be your maiden voyage aboard the Plant Proof ship, welcome. We've all been waiting for you to rock up. My name's Simon Hill. I'm your host or captain, if we're continuing the ship theme, qualified physiotherapist, nutritionist, author, science nerd, etc. So what is the deal with this show? How does it all go down, you ask? Well, let me give you a quick briefing. Currently, I publish two episodes a week. The first at the beginning of the week is a longer format where I sit down with all sorts of interesting guests, doctors, dietitians, athletes, people who have turned their health around, etc. And then the second episode, midweek, is a smaller, bite-sized piece of wisdom. I call these episodes Wednesday Wisdoms. Today being one of those Wednesday Wisdoms episodes, with wisdom coming courteous of the widely loved, tremendously courageous, and awe-inspiring Adam Sudd, a throwback to a conversation we had a few years ago now that quite literally floored me, a story that's equally raw and heart-wrenching as it is beautiful and inspiring. Quick disclaimer, this episode does make mention of suicide, a topic that is very close to my heart and a topic that I know can be very triggering for certain people. So just a heads up in case you want to give this episode a miss. I understand completely. So with all of that out of the way, time to hear this week's wisdom from Adam Sudd. Enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. I believe it comes down to the fact that showing up for my life was too painful. And this was a distraction that gave me pleasure. These foods created such a pleasure response that sort of numbed me up and would allow me to sort of eat copious amounts of food that would sort of overwhelm my senses and I'd end up falling asleep. And I sort of like to numb myself out and sleep for those periods of time until I could finally get more drugs. So I was either high as hell on amphetamines 
or just like gorge myself on fast foods that I could go to sleep. And my dad came to me, this was about 2009, and I'd probably reached about 300 pounds at that point. My dad has been a part of Whole Foods Market since the founding. And he comes to me and says, you know, Adam, Whole Foods Market has just partnered with this guy named Rip Esselstyn. And Rip Esselstyn wrote this book called The Engine 2 Diet. And now Whole Foods Market is creating these seven-day programs where you're going to go to this place to like a retreat and spend seven days with Rip and his team to learn how to adopt a plant-based diet to lose weight and get healthy. And I really want you to go. And I'm going to tell you right now, I had no interest in going and listening to this guy. I didn't care who he was. I didn't know who he was. And I sure shit didn't want to listen to what he had to say. I went because I knew if I did, my dad would keep giving me money. It was all about what can I get for me? I mean, I was broke. If I wasn't getting money from someone, I was going to be homeless in two weeks. And I went to this immersion. I was high all day long. Every single day I was there. I had copious amounts of drugs on me. If you were near me, you knew something was wrong, severely wrong. In fact, I didn't find this out until years later, but Rip told me that they were getting so many complaints about my appearance and my smell that they were having meetings to determine whether or not they were going to remove me from the program. And I know that the only reason why I wasn't asked to leave is because if you know Rip and you know the Engine 2 team, Rip only wants to see the good in people. And he believes that the good in people will always outweigh anything that's going on with them in the moment. And I honestly believe that that quality in Rip Esselstyn saved my life. I went to every single lecture and I listened to everything that was being said. I heard luminary doctors like Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Dr. Michael Clapper, Jeff Novick, these pioneering thought leaders that sort of crafted the, what we call preventative lifestyle medicine. I heard people like Doug Lyle and it really did make sense. And there was a guy named Jean-Pierre. He's a fitness trainer. He's been vegan for like over 20 years. And he and I really connected and he had me, the first night I was there, he had me watch Earthlings and I couldn't finish it. That night watching that film was such a visceral experience. And I told him since then that the most impactful thing that happened to me was watching that film. But the last night of the immersion, there was a speaker there named Dick Beardsley. And Dick Beardsley is one of the greatest marathoners of all time. You're in this incredibly famous race against Alberto Salazar in the New York Marathon. And I sat there listening to this guy really just sort of bare his soul saying, this is essentially me. And if ever there's going to be an opportunity for me to go up to somebody and say, I'm struggling with drugs, I'm struggling with food, I'm going to die and I'm scared and I don't know what to do and know that this person won't judge me for it, it's this guy right here. Let this be the opportunity that I walk up to somebody and for the first time ever admit out loud that I need help. And I can remember standing next to his table because he was signing his books and I tried to move closer to him, but my feet were glued to the floor. I wanted to say, just maybe if I just said hello, like hi or whatever, just start talking, then maybe I can work up the courage. And I was truly paralyzed with fear. And I can remember there's this like internal struggle going on that was causing a lot of anxiety. And that moment was very visceral. It was, it was a really intense experience. And I just walked away because I didn't think that life would be possible without the drugs. And unfortunately, about two years later, um, things just got much worse. My, my weight reached somewhere around 350 pounds. I lived like a hoarder at this point. Um, I lived in an apartment that was covered in fast food garbage and empty pill bottles. And my windows were boarded up because I didn't want people looking in. I didn't want people seeing me. The only time I ever left my apartment was to get drugs or food or to go to my parents' house for money or to fight with them. And I would say the most horrible things to my family. My sister hadn't, hadn't spoken to me in over a year at this point. My twin brother was the only person that I would actually be able to have 
you know, a normal conversation with, but he wasn't even living in Austin at the time. He was in school in Georgia. And, um, and I can remember coming home from shopping for clothes at a place called Casual Male XL because I had a 50-inch waist. And I remember this one night where I went into my bathroom and I took off my shirt and I stared at myself in the mirror. And I'm looking at all of these stretch marks, these rashes, because I wasn't showering for months at a time. I would see these lumps and, you know, I saw this person in the mirror that I didn't recognize as myself. And I just started beating myself as hard as I could over and over and over again. And every time I hit myself, I'd say to the mirror, I hate you you're worthless. I started crying. I fell to the floor and I was swollen from these, this beating that I just inflicted on myself because I knew that no matter how hard I hit myself, no matter how much I hated myself, I was never going to win this battle. And I had a phone call with my brother that night. And I said, you know, Bobby, um, my brother and I are incredibly close. And I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with me because things are really rough. But um, I want you to know that no matter what, I promise I will never commit suicide because I don't ever want to live my life without you. And I wouldn't want you to live your life without me. But about a week later on August 21st of 2012, I'm sitting in my living room. It was like two in the morning. And I had this thought that, you know what? Nothing's ever going to get any better. I was 30 years old. I already had erectile dysfunction. Living hurt emotionally, spiritually, physically. This wasn't a pre-planned thing. I, I hadn't like thought about how to do this or you know, when I was going to do it, but there was a, a, a pile of pills on my coffee table and I took them all and I attempted suicide by overdose. And um, I can remember panicking like I've never panicked before. And I can remember as I started to cramp up and the black starts to fade in thinking, as soon as this goes black, that's it. And I've never been so scared in my life. And um, I woke up a few hours later in a puddle of vomit, in a pile of fast food garbage, surrounded by empty pill bottles in a boarded up apartment with no one around me. Not because they didn't want to be there for me, but because I did everything I could to push everyone and everything out of my life till I was the only one in a dark empty apartment dying at the age of 30 from a life of self-abuse, self-hatred, and denial. And I had this very surreal moment where I came to a very clear understanding that if I didn't radically change the way that I moved through the world, my twin brother, my little sister, um, and my mom and my dad were going to spend every day of the rest of their lives um, trying to figure out why I needed to eat and drug myself to death. And I said, you know what? This phone call I'm about to make is for them. It's not for me yet. I didn't give a shit about myself yet. But I picked up the phone and I called my mom and my dad and I asked for help. They answered the phone and I just, as quickly as I could, said, I need help. They knew exactly what I meant. They didn't know the extent of the issues that I was dealing with. They knew, obviously, they knew there was a lot of things going on with me. And they asked me to pack a bag and come over to their house and to, we could figure this out. And two weeks later, they flew out to meet with me to Arizona so I could check myself into rehab. And um, I can remember walking into the door of rehab with my mom and my dad at my side and watching the nurse come from the far end of the hallway where there's an area where you spend a minimum of 24 hours. It's where you're going to detox. You'll spend any, anywhere from one day to two weeks in there, depending on the severity of your detox. And then you'll go from there to sort of like, I guess you'd call like the general population of rehab. And I watched her walk this entire thing. It was very slow because I knew the minute she got there, that was it. 
that was, I was going to, you know, my life was about to change and I had no idea what it looked like. It was really scary. And she, you know, she came up and she was very gentle. She was very kind. She said, you know, are you ready? And I said, yes. And I turned and looked at my mom and, and my dad and my mom had tears coming down her face and she, you know, put her arms around my dad and my dad started crying. And, and I've only seen my dad cry a few times um, uh, when his mom died in that day. I was diagnosed that day with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder. I didn't know at the time, you know, that erectile dysfunction is the first indication for men of heart disease. I know that now. But, you know, for me, it was like, well, I'm just completely broken as a human, as a man. My blood pressure, when they did my blood pressure check day one, was 210 over 100 and something. My resting heart rate was 120. My A1C was close to 12. They were so concerned with my chronic disease issues that they didn't even talk about my substance abuse. I mean, why would they? I'm not going to use in rehab. But uh, I, had to, I had to be monitored every morning and every night. My, my heart rate, my blood pressure, every morning and every night of every single day I was there, they were so concerned about my health. And I can remember being utterly destroyed emotionally in that moment. Because I thought, all right, I'm going to rehab. I'm going to get off the drugs. And that's my road to recovery, right? And that entire idea had just been shattered. And I can remember feeling completely helpless. And I felt so sad with myself, with my life. Because at this Engine 2 immersion that I went to, this retreat, I learned that these chronic health disorders are, these diseases are caused by our choices. This isn't genetic. I wasn't born this way, um, so I'm responsible. And I felt, I felt really bad about it. And I left the doctor's office and I went back to the dorm and I picked up the phone. I called my dad and I told him I was leaving. I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't do this. I thought all I had to do was get off the drugs. And now they're telling me I have diabetes, I have heart disease. I have all these psychological conditions that I, didn't un I don't understand. I don't know how, what the road looks like for people who are bipolar or, or any of that stuff. Really what I was saying was I'm really scared and I'm too afraid to do this. And the conversation that I had with my dad on the phone that day is one of the most profound conversations I've ever had in my life. He said, Adam, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you have heart disease, that you have diabetes, that you have these psychological conditions that they're telling you about. That's okay. I'm not saying that you do, but let's just have, for the sake of this conversation, let's just discuss this. At the engine to retreat, you learned that most of these things are reversible. Not only did you learn that they're reversible, you learned how to reverse them. So let's just Let's just talk about this, Adam. If there's things about your life that make you unhappy or make you afraid and you can do something about it, then it's not a problem. If there are things in your life that make you uncomfortable and you can't do anything about it, then it's not a problem. It's just the way things are and we have to change the way you look at it. And what he helped me realize was that there's really nothing in life that's a problem and that I was the solution to any problem that I had in my life because I was the cause of it. It was really empowering. And in that moment, my relationship with my dad completely switched. He was no longer my adversary. He was my ally. And I told myself, okay, fine. These emotional and psychological and substance abuse problems that I have are real. I have them. That's okay. I'm not going to judge myself for them. But I also, I don't completely understand them in a way that I can track or manage it. But I know what I can do for my chronic health. I know it's trackable. I know it's measurable on a daily basis. This is something I can use to build a foundation for positive change on a daily basis. 
that is going to be my, my foundation for my road to recovery. And at the end of rehab, they suggested that I move into a sober living facility in Southern California. And when I checked into sober living, I said, okay, this is great. This is where I'm going to actually start to, you know, put into practice some of the things I learned from RIP. And I would get up in the morning, I'll go to the pantry because I was living with 12 other guys who were, you know, in their mid-20s to early 30s who were all trying to, you know, recover. This is like a halfway house. And, and most of the people did not eat a healthy diet. And so they stocked whatever we wanted. But I opened the pantry for breakfast and there'd be two options staring me in the face. Fruity pebbles, which I loved. And oatmeal, which don't get me wrong, I like oatmeal and I liked it then. And I would have this internal struggle where I would say, okay, I know the consequences of choosing Fruity Pebbles. I know that if I make this choice, it's going to continue to fuel the disease and more than likely I was going to die because sobriety in and of itself for me was not a path to life. I was still going to die from my chronic health disorders if I didn't change the way that I moved through the world in a completely different way. I also knew if I choose oatmeal, it was going to make my life better. It was going to help me heal these conditions that I have. It was going to create positive change. So why in the world would I be sitting there knowing these two things and still want the Fruity Pebbles? Why was this not a matter of intellect and will? Why could I not know what to do to better my life, want to do it, and then that's it. End of story. I know the right thing to do. That's what I'm going to do every single day. Why would I want what I know is killing me? And then I remember that one of the presentations that I heard at the Immersion by Doug Lyles called The Pleasure Trap. And I didn't remember it completely, but I knew the basis of it. And I found his TED Talk and I watched his TED Talk. And by the end of it, I felt so much shame left from me. Because what I learned is that there actually is a, a biological mechanism that compels us to seek out any behavior that creates an extreme dopamine response because our bodies believe it's biologically beneficial. That when I ate Fruity Pebbles, it created a dopamine response. It was so outside the bounds of the normal human experience that our body believes it has to be the right thing to do. Because pleasure is our body's way of letting us know that we've done something that it believes is biologically beneficial. So the more pleasure we receive from a behavior, the greater the compulsion to continue doing that behavior will be. And so here I am knowing that when I have an option between something that I know is going to be detrimental to my health and a choice like oatmeal, which is going to be beneficial, and I still want the Fruity Pebbles, it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's not because I'm broken. It's actually because my body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, given the environment that I created for myself. And so I had this understanding that, all right, I'm not broken. I'm going to give myself the space and compassion to understand that the emotional response I'm getting from this food to want to continue doing something that I know is bad for me is okay because there's a biological mechanism to it. It's not because there's something wrong with me. And it, it helped me understand that if I wanted to be successful, I was going to have to get up every single day and be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And eventually I'll get up and it wouldn't be such a chore. And if I could be comfortable being uncomfortable long enough, eventually I get up and I actually look forward to choosing the oatmeal. That day would come. It's a biological fact. This was not about removing negativity from my life. This was about trying to bring in positivity more and more and more every single day until it just overwhelmed everything in my life. This was about love as a catalyst for lifetime long-term change. This was not about hate and fear because I think fear can be a great catalyst for short-term change. But love is the strongest catalyst for long-term change. I wanted to love myself into a positive place. I didn't want to hate myself out of a negative space. That was the difference. And I got up every single day and I learned that these food choices were simply daily acts of self-love and self-care. And within three months, my blood glucose, which my fasting blood glucose was 390 when I was diagnosed, 
within three months, it was completely normal. And I started to go hypoglycemic because I was on the highest amount of metformin that they can prescribe somebody. And so I just stopped taking the medication, which I don't recommend people doing. Obviously, I want you to talk to your doctors. And uh, I went to my endocrinologist at month four, and we had done some blood work. He comes back in and he sits down, and I can remember the look on his face. And he looked at me and he said, you know, your A1C means you're no longer diabetic. You know what I felt in that moment? I felt something that I hadn't felt in a long time, self-worth. And I stood up and I shook the doctor's hand and I said, thank you so much for your services, but I no longer need them. And I walked out of his office and I felt so empowered because that self-worth that I was feeling for the first time in a long time made me feel like I was worth saving for the first time in a long time. Made me feel like I was actually in control and it helped me realize that the only reason I was able to actually change my life is because at every single moment in my life, I was always been complete and enough And I've always been everything I needed to be to change my life. Otherwise, nothing would be possible. If I wasn't everything I needed to be to be the best and most authentic version of myself, I could never be that. Getting up every single day and making these choices, I wasn't becoming a new version of myself. I was becoming the authentic version of the person I've always been. And that was the biggest thing for me, was to realize that I'm going to stop judging myself for feeling urges and temptations and cravings. Life for me in recovery is not about reaching a point to where I never have urges or temptations or cravings or anger or sadness or fear, but to have them and be okay with them. To recognize that I'm going to allow these emotions and these feelings to happen and give them just as much space and compassion as I do feelings of joy and happiness and excitement. Because these feelings that I have are equally human and equally healthy as all experiences and all emotions that that humans have. And I wanted to be able to move through this world in a truly authentic way where I'm okay with these things. That was going to be my road to recovery. And in about 10 months, I'd lost over 100 pounds. And in a year, I was off all of my psych meds. So all my antidepressants, my mood stabilizers, my sleeping medications, my anxiety medications, and my ADHD medications. I realized that when my dad was criticizing my food choices as a kid, he was saying, I lost my dad because of an illness. And you matter so much to me that I don't want that to happen. I don't want to see you get taken from my life because I love you so much. He didn't have the tools to say, Adam, I love you. And what you're doing, the behaviors that you're engaging in scare me. Can we maybe try to develop behaviors of eating other things? Because I think that it will help you. And I want you with me as long as possible. Maybe he didn't have the tools to do that. And I don't want to judge him for it. But what I do want to do is say that I get it. And I love you for it. And the reason that I reacted in the way that I did is because I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And I I apologize to you for not being able to understand it. And that really helped us sort of mend our relationship. I did the same thing for for my mom, did the same thing for my sister and for my brother. And my sister, who hadn't talked to me in probably two years, was in the audience when I got my one year sober chip. And um, she and I have an incredible relationship. She's an amazing person. My parents and I, I have a photo, two photos in my apartment. One is a photo that's taken by my mom. And it's a photo of my dad and I as we're walking into the doors of rehab. And then I have a photo next to it that was taken by my mom as she watched my dad and I run the race in Austin three years later because they literally walked the entire path with me. Even though I had given up completely on myself, And even though I directed all my anger and hatred towards them, they never gave up on me. 
They never stopped loving me. No matter, I mean, I cannot imagine how hard it must have been to love me at that point in that time, to, to allow the things I was doing to them to happen and go, I get it. He's not himself. He's not living his authentic self. This is not entirely him. We're going to love him regardless. And we're going to wait as long as it takes to get him back. If you focus on the behaviors that bring positive change and you fall in love with those behaviors, the rest of your life will take care of itself in the time that's right for you. If you're trying to reverse diabetes, eat a low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet. Find a way to fall in love with putting those foods on your plate. If you do that, the diabetes will take care of itself. And not only that, you'll probably eat that diet for the rest of your life. Focus on the behaviors rather than the results in all aspects of your life. And for me, that's really worked. I'm not trying to be sober for the rest of my life. I'm not trying to be whole food plant-based for the rest of my life. All I'm trying to do is connect and fall in love with the things that are bringing the most positivity into the way that I move through the world right now. And for me right now, that is eating a plant-based diet, that is moving my body with purpose, that is mindfulness meditation, and that is practicing compassion whenever possible. I'm not avoiding meat, eggs, dairy, and drugs. I am accepting compassion, mindfulness, movement, and food. That is the way that I think that recovery works best for me. And I really want people to know that, that when we feel broken, it's, it's a feeling. It's not a fact. That for the most part, I would say that the majority of people, there's absolutely nothing wrong with who they are for feeling depressed, feeling anxious, feeling sad, or even feeling suicidal. And we need to understand that. Because if they weren't everything that they need to be and everything they've ever needed to be, recovery would never be possible for anyone. And everything that I've achieved in my life anybody else is capable of achieving. There's nothing special about me. I'm not, you know, this superhuman person. I'm not an elite athlete or anything like that. I simply got up every single day. And the reason why I was able to do this and I've been able to continue doing this every single day is because I found a reason strong enough to want to. If you give yourself the opportunity to discover that, everybody is capable of doing exactly what I was capable of doing. There's nothing that separates me from anyone else. There we go. What did I say? Heart-wrenching, right? One of the big takeaways for me from Adam's story is about removing self-judgment, being less critical of ourselves, accepting that the way we feel is not because we are uniquely broken, but because we are human. Secondly, while our problems may seem unsolvable at times, there are people around us, our family or people in our community, that we can lean on, that can help guide us through various solutions. It doesn't have to be a life sentence of unhappiness and asking for help is not a weakness, is not a weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. It takes an incredibly strong person to be as vulnerable as Adam was when he was at the lowest point in his life. So please, no matter how big you feel the issues are, the problems are, don't be afraid to reach out to those around you. Or if you really feel like there is nobody you can speak to in person, you can always reach out to a 24-7 helpline like Beyond Blue here in Australia or the equivalent organization in your country. There are people who will guide you to help you work through those problems, to see the solutions, to help you get your life back on track so you can be happier. Okay, so what's on the horizon? 
what's next on the program here. Episode 145 is with Professor Christopher Gardner out of Stanford University, one of my favorite nutrition scientists, really, really great guy. I think you'll learn a lot from that exchange, or at least I hope you do anyway. And then the week after is Australian environmentalist Tim Silverwood back on the show. We had a a really good conversation prior to the latest Sydney lockdowns about what he's been up to since our last episode. He's been working away on some pretty cool things. So if you want to be informed when those two episodes are out, hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And of course, it goes without saying, make sure that we're connected, you and I, on the socials at plant underscore proof on Instagram and Twitter and hit up Adam Sud at plant-based addict and let him know how today's episode landed for you. All right. I think on that note, it's time to let you get back to your life. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I look forward to connecting again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.